This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Justin Waldron, co-founder and president of Playco. Justin is a pioneer of the social gaming industry, having co-founded Zynga at age 19 and then Playco, the world's first instant gaming company. Our conversation explores the industry's evolution from web to mobile to blockchain, the unique opportunities crypto offers game creators like Justin, and how Playco's Web3 project, Storyverse, is creating a game engine for communities. Please enjoy my conversation with Justin Waldron. I'm excited to have Justin Waldron on the show today. Justin has an incredible movie-like story of a teenager, computer programmer, dropped out of college, built a multi-billion dollar business. And if you just stop there, I think you'd be missing some of what I think makes Justin so special. For anyone who hasn't listened to Justin, I highly recommend Patrick's interview on Founders Field Guide, where Justin explains his background, the foundations of Playco, his new company. What really impresses me about Justin is his desire to connect people and bring communities together. I'll try not to repeat a lot of the questions he's been asked, but one story that stuck with me in one of your prior interviews with Patrick was about pizza. Can you tell the story of pizza and how you think about gaming design like restaurants? That's great. So my thinking on games is often an excuse for people to get together. One way of thinking about it is if you were to get a group of friends together, pizza is one of the best ways to do that. It's a non-offensive type of meal that is easily shareable. You know, you're all eating the same thing. You break it into pieces. Everybody likes it and everyone's going to have a good time. It's made for a group consumption. There's other types of restaurants that are great that you can compete on being the best restaurant in some specific category. And there's a time and place for it, but they're really not great for bringing people together. So I think that this type of thinking, very similar genres and games and entertainment, where there's action movies, some of the Marvel movies would probably fit in this category. You can take anyone from your seven-year-old nephew to your grandfather to these movies, and pretty much everyone's going to be happy. And maybe those Marvel movies are essentially like pizza for movies. For games, I think it's the games where everyone feels smart. Everyone feels like the controls are intuitive and the rules are easy to learn, but they still feel like there's a challenge to it where they get excited when they're playing with other people. I think when we look at games recently, Wordle comes to mind as something that really nailed this idea. For me, I like to try to think of what types of experiences people could enjoy that could be as simple as enjoying a meal together. And I think pizza is the key, <laughs> the key go-to comparison that really makes it land. Yeah, I love that. I love your idea of when you want to ask someone to come over and hang out, you can't just say, come over. That would just be an odd idea. There needs to be some sort of engagement between the two people. Yeah, that's the other thing, which is right now, even setting up a Zoom, if you don't have a reason, it feels a bit odd. 
we've sort of conditioned ourselves to think that we need a reason to do certain things. And of course, you can always call a friend. But sometimes if you call a certain person at a certain time, they might be wondering like, you know, what's wrong? Why are you calling me? This seems urgent. If you haven't called in a while, you might need something. The cool thing about games is they just provide context. So having an activity to do together is a nice excuse to spend some time with another person. We know this. This is how dates work. This is why people go see a movie or eat a meal or go on a walk or hike or something like this. The trick is figuring out what the virtual equivalents are. Zoom is not really like a hike. It's intense. Imagine having a group meeting where you just stare face to face at each other for an hour. It's a super intense form of social interaction. And it's almost like the intensity is making up for the fact that it's so virtual. By just staring at each other directly for an hour, we can almost make up for the fact that we're not really there. But I think a lot of social context comes back to what you're doing with each other. And it's not just the audio and the video, but the feelings that you can create. And there's these shared moments of tasting the same thing, smelling the same thing, feeling the same breeze and looking at the same view when you hike up in a place where you can see Golden Gate Bridge. These are the reasons you do things together. Shared experiences, you're firing neurons in the brain that are the same between the two people. And it's a much more interesting way to form a connection and a bond with someone. I think that the virtual equivalent of that is staging these other experiences and games are one really, really great way of doing it. It's funny because during COVID, this odd behavior started happening between me and my friends where we used to play poker together. And now we play poker online on one screen. And then next to us is another screen with a Zoom chat. And that experience feels very different than sitting on a meeting with seven people talking about something. When you're doing that, to your point, it feels very draining. Yet somehow when you're playing poker with your friends and there's a Zoom screen on the other side, it's a completely different experience. Could you talk a little bit more about why bringing people together with a game somehow triggers them in a different way to play with each other, similar to how I think when we look at our kids playing together? I think play is something that's biological. It's not just human, it's mammalian. It's something you see in dogs and all sorts of different species. It's something that's pretty basic to the way we learn. And it's a way for us to sort of break out of these fictions or these molds that we've created for ourselves and to try another one on. I think that that's part of the way that we basically debug our brains and test the boundaries of our relationships. It's similar to humor. A lot of people that study humor believe it's one way for the brain to test the boundaries of your beliefs. And I think games are a way to test the boundaries of your social relationships with other people in a safe way. So just like comedy can safely let us tiptoe to the edges of what we believe or what the group believes or what the room believes in a way that feels safe, I think games let us test the boundaries of what's safe in our relationships in a way that everybody feels very comfortable with. They serve a really important piece of the puzzle for people building relationships in a way that they don't feel is risky. I'm always excited by people that change my view on something and you've done that for me. And so I think what will be interesting to talk about is instant gaming. I think my bias was that game manufacturers were trying to create addictive behaviors and that the games didn't do anything. I was very judgmental that you were just trying to hook people. Can you talk more about instant gaming and people finding joy or creativity or play in those spaces and why maybe my original thesis was a little bit naive or oversimplistic? For me, in my career, I've been really excited about giving people new ways to play. I think when we're children, we start in a place where we're super open to all these different ways of playing. It sort of gets slowly pulled out of us over time. And there are very few kids who aren't really down to paint. This is something that almost any kid gets excited about at a certain age. And then at some point, the idea of getting out the paint and starting to paint feels like more and more work. And the way that you look at a painting and be aware of all these other beautiful paintings and compare your painting to that painting 
these are the reasons we stop creating. One of the cool things about games is you can create a new context and say, well, here's another way to look at what you made. You don't have to compare your painting against something you saw in a museum. You can take this farm you made and you can compare it to a friend and that's attainable. You can give people goals that are realistic and at their level and help them really feel the progress that they make. Because a lot of things in life that are worth getting good at, music comes to mind or any of these other types of skills, it takes a lot of time and investment and progress can be difficult to see on a day-to-day basis. I think that the magic of games is trying to figure out a way where people can really visualize and understand that progress because inside of everybody is this ability to make progress in doing something interesting. What I saw in some of the games we built at Zynga, like a Farmville or something like this, was we had people who otherwise weren't spending a lot of their time being creative, doing this really simple task of adding one thing at a time to their farms. And after playing the game for months, or in some cases for years, the farm that they would have put together is something that's beyond their wildest imaginations. And so they built it. We didn't build it for them. And if you thought about the amount of effort they put in beforehand, you told them, you're going to play this game for thousands of hours. Most of those people probably wouldn't have ever believed you. But by playing this game and making all these decisions piece by piece, they're able to make something they're super proud of at the end of it. And so I think that people are universally motivated by some of these particular things, like being able to create something that they can show other people they care about. And one of the opportunities for people building games is just to tap into that insight and try to make something that helps people express themselves and invest in something in a way that's easier than some of the other opportunities they might have. What I would say is if you really do it right, then you're also just surprised by what people make. Because if you build the right set of tools, in my experience, people end up doing things that you never really thought were possible. The Farmville example is a funny one. I mentioned this on a different podcast, but my mom became a huge fan of that game. She was in her 50s, had three kids, two jobs, yet somehow she started playing this game. And as teenagers, we would just torture her that she was wasting time. And now we fast forward today, and we'll get into this with NFTs. I reflect back on it. And she made all these friends on the internet. I remember specifically, she had friends in Israel, England, and India. And the reason was that they were all maintaining each other's farms. They were becoming a community and talking about it. And we would tease her like, what are you doing with your farming friends? But I feel now in hindsight, (laughs) after having my experience in Web3, it was really just a nascent stage of people coming together, doing something simply. But what I was always curious about was we never knew how she started something like that. She wasn't a person that we would consider a gamer. So how did Farmville, when you think about your first principles approach, even allow people in that onboarding? Because I think that's such an interesting part of Web3 and gaming is how you even let someone have the confidence to say, I'm going to try this. Yeah, it's about removing friction in any way possible. And for us at that time, there weren't a lot of games you could play where you could actually click around in a movable map and build something on the web without having to download anything. It's hard to believe, but that type of experience wasn't really common when we built Farmville. To land on a web page and have a character that's there and ready for you to tap around and start playing, and for someone who's never played a real-time strategy game like StarCraft or something else, they can understand, okay, this is just built into this web page and I have to tap and plant these first seeds. You're asking something really small, right? You're just saying, hey, plant a seed. I'm sure there's something within us that wants to plant and harvest. I mean, there has to be. We made it here somehow. And I think that these games must tap into that. It's such a small ask. The game doesn't ask much of you, actually. It really starts off quite simply like that. And then after you've planted a few seeds, you maybe harvest something quickly that's ready to harvest already. There's a plant or two that's already there. And then you find out, oh, okay, I harvest these things. And this is interesting. 
But those other seeds that I planted, they're going to have to grow for the next day. And basically you run out of coin and you can't play the game anymore. And we're literally telling you to, to go away and come back tomorrow. At that time, that was another thing that was completely brand new. And that's because there was never any situation where a game would really or could really tell you something like that. Games weren't a service. There was something you popped in and were able to play whenever you needed to in your Game Boy or on a console. And this idea that you would tell somebody after 10 minutes of playing, you're done, come back tomorrow, was a totally new thing. And actually, for a lot of people, perhaps for your mom, that felt really comfortable to have the game say, okay, you're done. You don't need to play anymore. It also really helped people understand, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll come back tomorrow. In that way, this is now something that is very widespread. But at the time, that was a very new concept. I'm sure that there are many communities, or at least there probably used to be more communities of neighbors, of people your mother's age, who are working on their gardens and sharing them with their neighbors. In many ways, this is really a continuation of the urge to do something like that and to beautify a space, whether it's virtual or not. It is funny how much overlap there is with the NFT community. And you have to give it to your mom for being so ahead of the curve. That's a lesson. Now that I'm a parent, make sure you listen to your parents because they know what's going on before you do. Just to double click down there a little bit on game design. I'm really curious how much of this stuff is planned out in advance versus accidental. Like how much are game designers working with psychologists and economists to say, okay, if we do this, then this person will do that. And so by turning them off, we cause this reaction that they want more versus we just turned it off. And then all of a sudden this emergent behavior happened. How much of it is planned versus you A-B test and then you see how people react and say, oh, that worked. Let's keep doing more of that. The truth is a lot of really great ideas in games, in my opinion, at least things I've seen work really well. It really comes from someone who's a strong design thinker. And that design thinker usually has a lot of experience in watching people play the things they've built and understanding emotions and the way that people reacted, what they understand, what they don't understand, what the player wants, ultimately, what people are interested in and what motivates them. The idea that psychologists are involved has become quite pervasive. And there probably are some companies who've hired psychologists at the social networking companies or at game companies to really come and learn this craft. I think that people who end up taking too scientific of an approach to it end up really making games that are a bit too soulless. They don't land with players. And I think that it's good to be experimental and it's a bit more like improv. If you're building something that's good and it's new, you have to watch what people do and you have to see what they want to do. And then you have to go and try to figure out how to make that more interesting. So I like to think about it like finding where the heat is. It's a bit of a dance of creating opportunities for people to do interesting things and then letting them surprise you. And then when they surprise you, going and taking that and running with it. I actually love this, the way that live ops works for these games, when you really can get in this mode where the player is helping you figure out where to go next. And then you're kind of surprising the players with where you take it. The idea of the players, because this will get into a lot of where you're going now with Playco. How much do you think about the idea of the Steve Jobs? They wouldn't know what they wanted. I have to show them versus no, they know exactly. And we're more of the guiding designer for them. It's funny. If you asked anybody if a farm game would have been the biggest game in 2009, there's not a single person that would have believed you. I think context matters. I think understanding how things are shifting and what's possible and what's interesting in that context is important. And I can reason it when I look back on why Farmville was particularly interesting at that time. Although I'll say before it was released, there were no console games that were farm simulators that anybody was playing. And I think it comes back to how we designed the game around this idea of time being limited and the space being something you visit. 
you can come and go and it exists when you're there when you're not. That was a new way of thinking about these games as a service where there was space you were visiting that existed even when you weren't playing. I think that opened up this idea for spaces like farms. Naturally, after you create the space that can keep existing without you there because your friends can visit it, the question is, well, what kind of spaces do people want to create? And if you think about it that way, of course, there were city building games and things like this. But this idea of being able to build your own homestead is a very personal, very accessible thing that I think a lot of people actually do and have thought about. And the way that it made people feel when they were playing it, it's a very relaxing thing to spend time in a place like that. And visiting your friends' places that are like that is also very relaxing. We did have a city game and it was popular, but the idea of feeling in visiting a city versus visiting a farm is quite a different feeling. I think that in many ways, farm is this thing that everybody wanted and they didn't necessarily know it. And you can kind of understand why when they had it, but before it was pretty tough to see coming. I don't think that it's necessarily that players don't know what they want. I just think that there are a lot of things you really have to get right for something to work. One thing is to make it easy. And another thing is to make it fun. And another is to have great timing and understand where the market's going. It's something that if you get enough experience, it's back to this idea of people who've been in the industry, have seen some cycles happen, are really familiar with certain players and what they want. You can give a good stab at what might be next. And then after that, you just need a little bit of luck. Yeah. So where you've had now multiple decades starting so young in the gaming industry, I'd love for you to give an overview of those cycles. From my perspective, we had Facebook and we were playing games for a bit there. And then we got phones. And I don't know if this is the right observation, but it feels to me we have these super intense games with high resolution graphics. And then we're in the app store. And something happened along the way where the web-based went away. Can you kind of explain from a technical standpoint, from an industry standpoint, why we went in that direction? Yeah, it feels like it's a story that really got buried. <laughs> it's interesting to think back to how much things have changed. At the beginning of smartphone era, if you consider that to be when the iPhone was released, just how much changed in the first few years of the iPhone. So where I would start is with games on the web, there wasn't really a business model for a while. Games existed on the web for over a decade before Zynga was built. But we always thought it was interesting because there wasn't a great games company on the web. You had great games companies on consoles. You had a clear business model there. You didn't have a game company on the web that was one of these internet treasures is what we like to call it. It's a company that you couldn't imagine life before that company came around. You had Amazon for shopping and search. There was Google and Facebook. Social was becoming a thing when we started Zynga. We wanted to build a company like that. And we thought it's so obvious that games are a big enough category to support a company like that. Why doesn't it exist? And it came down to the business model. These other game companies on the internet, like AddictingGames.com and others, they were really able to provide fun experiences, but they weren't able to make a developer enough revenue to actually support them to grow a larger team and to build a larger game. And so while the console games had the profit and the flywheel to go and build bigger and bigger teams, better companies, better technology, Addicting Games and these games portals, they were really stuck. They had a lot of developers who were one-person, two-person teams working on the weekend. They were hobbyists. They were really passionate about what they did. And every once in a while, you'd play something that somebody put a lot of time and love into, but they weren't able to make enough money to go and build it into a business. So things always got stalled out at what one person could do out of a pure passion. The key breakthrough that we had was understanding this idea of freemium would be the unlock to that. And that by allowing people to buy things in the game and by making the distribution through social networks, we could lower the cost of the distribution we could improve the quality of the game because you'd be playing with your friends. So it'd be more fun than a game you played by yourself. 
and by allowing people to monetize by buying things in the game, we could make enough revenue to build bigger teams, to build bigger experiences that eventually had the depth of a console game. These games were games that you could play for years, literally, and people did and still do. And now that business model has become the main business model. When it came to mobile, we moved from this idea of games being distributed from social networks and more focused on the app stores and performance marketing. It's interesting because when the iPhone was first released, of course, Steve Jobs didn't want an app platform on it. The first version of the iPhone didn't have an app platform on it. And a lot of people don't remember that the first iPhone didn't have 3G internet. It had Edge, it had 2G, and it could barely load a web page. And the entire web was made for broadband in the US. It was pages that were meant to load on high bandwidth connections being viewed on a tiny screen with a 2G connection. And it was just a bad experience. Actually, the first iPhone is not the one that most people remember as the first iPhone. Most people remember the next iPhone came out and the 3G was added. And they think of that as the first iPhone. And they've totally forgotten this year where there was a phone that had a very beautiful screen. And most of the people that had it were quite frustrated by it. They could barely type on it. They couldn't really browse the web. There was no app store. It wasn't really a product that was quite ready to work yet. Of course, there's nothing wrong with Apple putting out a product a generation or two before it's ready, but it's funny more just because I don't think most people remember that piece of history. They always think of iPhone as a media out the door success and it just wasn't. And shortly after the App Store came out, Steve Jobs gave up on the idea of a web platform and famously killed Flash. And all these games that were built for the web were built with Flash because it was the only way to build really high quality interactive experiences on a web page. So by Steve Jobs killing Flash, he ended this entire era of games as the iPhone and iPad and the iOS operating system became more and more popular. Not only did the technology get hit in a big way, but the distribution changed completely. The thing that stuck was the business model. So freemium continued to be the dominant business model after Zynga established that in the social game era. But then the way of acquiring customers moved toward performance marketing. The interesting thing about the way for acquiring customers changing is that it also changed the people who played the games. If you're finding them through an ad, then your friends probably aren't there because you didn't learn about it from a friend. And because your friends aren't there, you're not playing with your friends. And if you're not playing with your friends, well, suddenly that means that for the game developer, they should really be focusing on building a game where they can succeed on advertising and making the most revenue while having the lowest cost of acquisition on an ad. And so if you look at how the genres that people are playing change over the last 10 years, it's because that's the KPIs that these companies have to focus on. We're left with is games that did get increasingly lonely because they've been chasing the highest value players for the lowest cost they can get them at. And that's a totally different model than one where you're really trying to figure out how do I bring as many people into a game as possible? And then hopefully some of them will pay me enough to cover all the people who don't. In the performance marketing model, any player that you buy on an advertising network that doesn't end up paying you is considered dead weight, which is unfortunate because there's still a lot of people who don't pay for games. In some ways, the market, although the revenue has been growing, the number of users on these games that are succeeding and actually earning a lot of revenue in the app store, many of them are earning hundreds of millions or a billion dollars a year now. Their daily user numbers are far, far smaller than they ever were even a decade ago. Farmville had 40 million daily active users. And the largest games in the App Store have something like 140th of that at any given time. Even if they're making revenue that's comparable to Farmville, the, the audiences on these games have shrunk dramatically. And so a lot of people mistake the fact that revenue has grown so much for the premium game industry over the last 10 years with the idea of thinking that as the smartphone market expanded, it's just been about increased access. But actually, it's been about much, much deeper monetization on a smaller set of players. 
for me, that's part of why I didn't spend as much time focused on mobile gaming over the last seven years or so after I left Singa, because I was really excited about games that increased the amount of people that were playing that got more people involved who didn't see themselves as gamers. And the industry, as successful as it was from a business perspective, was really focused on that less and less over time. That is such an amazing and helpful overview. I can't help but think knowing you now and understanding your goal that you just said of trying to increase people, how hard was that for someone that had been so excited about building games and creating people and getting to 40 million active users to see the industry take such a hard shift away from what your vision was? It happened slowly. I don't think people realize that that was the case immediately, myself included. There were small things that I felt were concerning. Oh, Flash is gone. That's not great. And it turns out some of the app stores are not going to allow the social networks to integrate in a way where people can really share these games with their friends very easily. That was disappointing. And there were a lot of moments like that. We started to see the types of games that Machine Zone would build or something where they would be these super advanced strategy games that had very small audiences, but people would spend a lot of money in these games. And at first you would think, wow, it's amazing to see a game like this make so much revenue. Great for them. It's cool to see that these types of games are succeeding in freemium too. But what ended up happening was this arms race in terms of everyone's competing in the same ad channel. And so now if you want to get access to those same users, you have to have a game that monetizes as well as that game on a per user basis. And so what you really started noticing seven or eight years ago was that to succeed in the app store, because all the marketing was driven through the same performance marketing channels, every game that wanted to succeed had to outdo all the previous games that existed in terms of unit economics. So you had to have better monetization or lower CAC for the same customers. And what that meant is the margin for error kept decreasing over time. And what I loved about games where you discover them through your friends is there are sort of two ways to succeed with that model. If you can make a game that people discover through their friend, it's possible that the marketing channels are great and they help fuel your growth, but they don't need to win purely on that CAC LTV equation. You can have enough people who are spreading this organically. A game that really stands out that people want to talk about can still break out. And I think what's tough about the App Store now is you have to thread that needle. Really, if you want to win in the puzzle category now, you have to beat the efficiency of every puzzle game that's been released before yours that gap and the amount of money that's been invested in these games, it's incredibly difficult to do that today. So when you think about innovation in the app store and how much room there is left from a business model perspective, I think Apple and other companies realize this and they've tried to create other programs to support other types of games and approaches. But unfortunately, without a real means of discovery outside of the performance marketing, I think it's been very difficult to allow for more innovation on the business model or for different genres. And although it's led to some very large scale successes, it's... (laughs) It's really limited what people can do in terms of experimentation. For me, part of the reason also for working on games that connect people is it creates a broader opportunity to experiment with different models. There are multiple ways to succeed and you're not at the whims of a marketing platform. It's so interesting. You mentioned the superhero movies. It kind of reminds me of when businesses start to optimize for risk-adjusted returns and they're trying to think, We are spending a lot of money. What's the guaranteed way to lower our risk and increase returns? You get this very mimetic behavior that, okay, we're not going to take risks anymore because we don't know if that will work. And we know that if we do this, we'll kind of optimize towards a certain thing. And so I think this is probably a perfect transition to Web3. You were early in crypto. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as you saw things like Dapper Labs, which I know you were early on, 
when that started to hit the scene, how did you first approach it? When you saw these type of people, what were you thinking of what was possible with this new Web3 game development? It took a while for me to really understand what in crypto would be interesting and what I would want to work on when it came to games. And just because everyone mentions when they first saw Bitcoin, I don't remember what year it was. It was pretty early. If I knew exactly when, if I could find the moment, I would really regret not buying more. When I found it, it was interesting because I was in this context where I was set up to look at it the wrong way. I saw Bitcoin very, very early and I was still at Zynga. And here we were, the company that was selling the most virtual currency in the world every day. We're selling over a billion dollars a year of the stuff. And I heard about this white paper and I saw this thing and I thought, wow, like we have 3,000 people every day trying to figure out how to make people buy these virtual currencies. And it's really hard. And here's this thing. And they made a virtual currency or he or she made a virtual currency. And they're just assuming that people are going to care about it. And we spend so much time creating these games and these contexts for people to want to buy this currency. And it's hard. And so I looked at it and I just thought, there's no way that that will happen organically. And this was probably like 2011-ish or something. This is very, very early. It came on my radar because it was a currency. And because we worked on virtual currencies, it was something that got passed around at some point. And at that point, I just felt like there's no way. I understood that it was something that could be traded outside of games and that that was interesting. But because there wasn't really anyone using it yet, I couldn't really figure out why that would matter. And it was really hard to imagine it getting to the scale where it would. It was too much with the framing of these game currencies we were selling at the time that was clouding my judgment of looking at it. It wasn't something I could view as its own sovereign currency. It was a couple of years later that I then ended up really seriously getting into it and buying a bunch and learning a lot more along the way. Actually, it's funny. I had early encounters with Ethereum that I should have been even earlier to understand why that was so interesting. I was a mentor for the Teal Fellows. And as some people know, Vitalik was a Teal Fellow. And I got emails in my inbox about Teal Fellows that people were suggesting I should meet. And one of them was Vitalik. And when I was looking at this idea of a decentralized computing infrastructure, and I just finally wrapped my head around the idea of Bitcoin, before Ethereum existed, it was hard to even imagine something like that. In some ways, I really have to hand it to Peter Thiel and his team for being able to recognize that talent that early. It's tremendous, but it's not that I reviewed it in detail and then thought that I wouldn't meet him. I had this opportunity sitting in front of me. I was going to these groups and meeting these people and it didn't pop out to me just how big of a deal that could be. So it's funny, but I did end up getting into the NFT stuff pretty early like you mentioned, because I had some friends who were smart and were really interested in it. And again, come from this background of virtual goods and we're looking at these NFTs and thinking about what it might mean. So I met a lot of the early teams like Decentraland and the team behind CryptoKitties before it was when they were called Axiom Zen. And I got to spend time helping them out on the gaming side, thinking about where to take it, learning a lot from them about this market that barely existed yet and what was going on, keeping tabs on it and actually getting an education from the best people in the space. And so it just so happened that the three teams I ended up advising were Decentraland, Dapper, and Immutable, who I think are three really interesting, great companies and projects in the space. And that really set me up to see the arc of this. And by the way, like the winters and the summers. So it helped me understand what themes I think are interesting, see some of the projects that have come and go and mistakes I'd like to avoid. And honestly, just learned a ton about the way they built communities for all those projects and companies. So What I got to thinking about watching the latest wave of NFTs, thinking about in terms of assets and capabilities we had at Playco and what interests me personally and what I would like to see exist in the world 
it was this combination of how do you take something where people can be creative, they can build their own businesses, and they can take the creativity they have, the capabilities they have, or the assets they have and combine them with other people in a way to make something greater than they can make by themselves. And in the case of Farmville, you're playing a game and you're building this thing that ends up being pretty cool that you're pretty proud of. What I thought was amazing about Web3 was when this idea came around of bottoms up brands and people being able to work with the art that other people have created. I thought, this is incredible. It's such a challenge to get a great brand on board when you're building a game. And it's something that's so time consuming that small developers don't have time to actually go and do that. If there's a way we can start building tools for people to take this IP that they have the rights to use, that's truly amazing IP, stuff that could stand next to the best game brands in the world, and we can help them build something great with it. That just seems like a huge opportunity. And so that's when we started coming up with the idea of what Storyverse could be. Just before we go into Storyverse, I'm curious, with the NFTs, you mentioned had like a recent wave. But there was essentially, when CryptoKitties comes out, you have this first introduction of NFTs and collectibles, and it goes through this boom-bust cycle. And then it kind of reemerges and call it 2019, 2020. And then 2021 was obviously a huge year where it got a much more adoption. From your experience in cycles, thinking about Playco and entering this space, was it always in your mind from the first time you met with Decentraland and Immutable and Dapper that this is the direction you wanted to go? Or were you actually skeptical about the bottom-up brand and communities becoming emergent and turning these things into much larger organizations? It gets back to that idea of emergent behavior in games. Are people building something that could lead to other people doing things that are new, unexpected, and interesting that then you could really take somewhere? And so what excited me about Decentraland was there had been many virtual worlds and I had worked on some and they've been pretty big, but they weren't allowing for some of the things that one with true ownership could allow for. And so that just fascinated me. And I just wanted to learn more about it. It was almost like an intellectual pursuit as much as anything else. And the same went for CryptoKitties. Having spent so much time thinking about how do we make virtual goods people care more about and how do we increase the ways they can trade them and the utility they can get out of them. And then seeing it happen on a new technology that could theoretically enable all these other things, it was just like you had to pay attention, not because of any particular direction, but because there were so many directions. That's why I think this idea of composability is at the heart of what I think is interesting in this space. It's the fact that there are so many potential futures. And that's exciting because normally a developer is limited in their resources. The fact that not everyone can build off their work means that even though there are all these potential futures, you may never see any of them pan out. But in crypto, you can really dream and believe that many of those will be possible. And if they aren't, and if that team doesn't execute on them, maybe you can, or maybe someone else can. And what I think is so interesting about the discourse in the space where people have criticisms of how something is done, it's one of the only places where you can actually really tell someone, like, why don't you go fix it? You know, it's like we're all building the world's future computing infrastructure here. And if you had a complaint about how HTTPS works or SSL, that's not something that's very easy to go and fix. And I'm not saying that everybody has the same skill sets, but your ability to literally go and create new standards and build on the shoulders of giants in this space is totally unmatched. The reason I think I landed on something like Storyverse is this idea that I don't want to build alone. It's possible to go and build alone. We have the resources. We built games before. And there are a lot of game companies that are looking at the space and saying, you know what? We're going to go build our new big game on the blockchain. And we're going to take advantage of the things the blockchain can do to make a game that we could have also built outside the blockchain even better. 
I think that some people will succeed with that approach and there's going to be some really great games that come out of it. But for me, I'm really interested in what could we do with this technology that would have been totally impossible without blockchain? Of course, item trading and true ownership wouldn't have been possible without blockchain, but games have had trading economies and there are even ones where people have made really like truly a living off of those trading economies. And yes, the ones on blockchain will be better and there's far more things you can do with those assets, but it's better than incrementally better. But it's not something that's fundamentally new to me. This idea that people actually are part owners in something and can use these building blocks to create something that they otherwise couldn't is really amazing. So I think of like even a TikTok to think about a Web2 property. If you look at the videos that people create on TikTok, yes, they built great editing tools. But let's just think about the licensing for a second. I mean, if you strip TikTok of the licensed music, you really have a far worse product. And one of the things that TikTok did was actually figure out, and its predecessor Musical.ly, figure out how to get those licenses, which is not easy, and then combine them with content in a way where people could really make great content with this music. No one had really figured that out before. Facebook certainly had the same opportunity, and Snapchat had people making videos, short videos, all the time. But companies hadn't figured out how to combine this content, this music that you had to license and let people do something with it, where their video or their photos plus this music was something that was much better than any of the individual pieces. And so that makes me think blockchain actually allows for the same on the visual side. And it would be very difficult to identify some set of generic game art and say, okay, everybody go to town. There's some sort of like game platforms that probably do that where they provide you some art to play with. And even Unity has asset packs you can buy that are cheap. But none of that is actually something that is a brand or an IP that people want to invest in and could actually be something that people recognize and get excited about. So this idea that anyone can make something with something that's also recognizable in a real IP and could be a franchise is actually super exciting. This is the type of thing that these deals take months and months to get done when you're a game company and working with license holders. And, and the fact that people can do them permissionlessly seems like a brand new thing to me. It could pull apart what a game company is. And we can do a lot of the coordination of the way that games work with other companies and license holders right now and make it something that the blockchain can help reorganize and build something better. Let's talk about Storyverse and how you're thinking about this new project where the idea came from, what your vision is, just at a high level, explain to people that maybe haven't had exposure to Storyverse, what you guys are thinking about. Storyverse is, we like to say that it's a platform to help bring your NFTs to life. And the reason we say that is because there are so many people who care so much about their NFTs and they're using them as their profile picture. They have this character that they really identify with and they may have even imagined and in some cases, even written down backstories for these characters or thought of them as having a personality. And maybe they have a set of other PFPs that would be their friends because they share some attributes or they complement each other in interesting ways. People's imaginations have been coming up with this and communities have been passionate about the lore. And as game developers, when we look at these characters, we thought they need to become the life. They need to be animated and rigged. They need to be something that people can put inside of a game and watch that character living and breathing and doing things with other characters. We got really excited about that. We tried to figure out how we could go about enabling that and basically taking whatever engine we built and making it something that the actual owners of these characters and these PFPs, these NFTs could use to create something that then other people could consume. So after you take your character, you can build a story with your character, an animated interactive story game that's super easy to play. You share it with a link. 
And you don't need to be the person to animate your character. If you have an ape, it's supported and it's integrated and you show your wallet, you can use the characters you have the commercial rights to through a project like the Board Apes, where those rights are provided to owners. And you can pull in that ape and you can make new content with it. Just like you can make an amazing viral video on TikTok with a hit song from a pop artist that TikTok has the license for, you can now take this art and the community associated with it and build something that can go viral on its own that's yours, that you own, and that commercially can succeed and that you can benefit from. But also, if you make a hit video on TikTok that has the latest pop song in it, the music artist benefits too. That's how great new music gets heard now and discovered. And the same goes for this platform. It's like you can have a whole community of people who have rights and ownership of their particular character or particular ape going and making content that benefits all the apes. And we think that this type of thing, not only is it fun, you could use it to just create a meme on Twitter and share something quickly of your character responding to somebody else. Or you can go and create a very long, involved story that could rival a cartoon you would see on TV. We also think it's just a great way for people to take the energy and the passion they have for these different communities and put it to good use. So many questions. Just so people who haven't seen it, I have a bored ape. I had had a pseudonymous character named Rourke, and I named my ape that. And Justin was able to wire it up and create a story. And so what you see is a cartoon with little bubbles of text that was a really fun story about the Bored Ape Yacht Club. So this idea of creating these stories and transferring that power over to the creators, how do you see creators interacting with this? Do they have to understand coding? Is there a line to get your NFT animated? I know you specialize in decreasing the friction. So how does Storyverse decrease the friction in taking my NFTs and bringing them to life? You as somebody who owns NFTs that you want to go and create content with, that experience is going to be as easy as any other top-class consumer game, basically. It's not a AAA game, but something that is very, very accessible. We like to think of it as something that's easy as creating or chatting on iMessage. It would be how easy it is to actually have these conversations between characters. You're entering in the dialogue they're having between each other. It's just like typing in messages that you'd otherwise have on your phone. You can reorganize those messages and you can think of it as the interface being just like you'd select emoji somebody laughed, somebody's crying or fell or whatever, inserting these things is really just as easy as that. And we're going to lean on interfaces people already know and understand and use every day so that it's familiar and there's no learning curve. And then of course, you can place them in the scene, you can drag them and drop them. Probably the way that we're going to approach it is basically have different levels of complexity that you can opt in or out of. And we really love when we look at platforms like TikTok, this idea of remixing and being able to pull in templates to really easily create content. We want to make it something that if you want to do a hot take and dive in and out, it's possible to just drop your character in and get something done in seconds. But then if you want to go spend hours in it, we can give you some more access to pieces that you can get more detailed as you care and as you desire. And so that's something we feel we're really good at. We know how to build games and experiences that start simple enough that they don't scare people away on the first moment. And in a lot of cases, these other games we're building, you get there, you show up, and you're not as committed as you are in the story versus you're actually going to start playing a game that you just heard about a few seconds ago, and it's got three seconds to convince you to not go back or leave the page or close the app. We're used to operating in that sort of environment. So in a place where people already understand they own these NFTs, they want to put them to work, and perhaps even own the NFTs, like the plots that we're selling that are the NFTs that enable for you to do this, I think that actually they'll have even more patience than what we're used to. We're used to sort of the most flighty users on the internet popping in and out and trying to grab their attention immediately. 
So the tools will be super easy to use. And then the output of it is a link that you can share anywhere. What I think is interesting about these NFTs is they live across all the social networks and they've almost formed a social network on top of the other social networks because these communities exist in many places. In the old Web2 way of thinking about social networks, if you build a community on Facebook, you can't take that same community and then also go interact with them on Twitter and also go interact with them on Discord and on Reddit. This community is a community that's constrained to just Facebook and it's not easily portable anywhere else. And what's fascinating to me about the NFT community is that it creates a new way of organizing people that is platform agnostic. That means that what we build has to really lean into that and allow people to share this content wherever they are. It's not something that you can only use in one particular place. It's a link that you can share it on Discord, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. It doesn't matter. Wherever you're hanging out with your community, you can go ahead and share it. We've spent a lot of time building tech over the years at Playco to enable these games that load instantly in all these different contexts. And they look and play as well as an App Store game but they don't require any download. And it's something that people can see as easily as viewing a video or a GIF. Before we got on the air, we were talking a little bit more about Twitter and TikTok and this balance of the ease of use of the platform. And then once you kind of figure out how the game works, there's this incentive behavior, whether it's upvotes or liking or hearts. What are you thinking about in the Storyverse? I know you mentioned plots, but there's also this idea of a token called Inc. How do those interact with the stories and how the communities can contribute to a story? I think there's going to be multiple things motivating different people that are participants. So we want to make sure we keep it open-ended enough for all the different people who might want to use this. One thing that I think people will be motivated by is, well, I have this character I create, and this character has a value. It's an NFT. It's already tradable. And one way of looking at it is, well, Sony has the rights to Spider-Man right now. And Spider-Man has a value in the movies that Sony is putting out related to Spider-Man are growing the value of Spider-Man, or if maybe if they make a bad movie, maybe the value of Spider-Man will go down. Spider-Man is not valuable because of the number of some sort of pattern on his shirt or some specific trait about Spider-Man. But there are traits about Spider-Man that are important, that are recognizable. And we think that the real thing that makes a character valuable is a combination of, of course, what the character looks like, but also the character's backstory and all these other interesting things that that opens up in terms of the way people feel about the character. I think that for a collector or for anyone who's passionate about their PFB, start thinking about their character with more depth than its traits and to start thinking about how they can differentiate it in the long run and create basically more works that are referencing their character opens up a real possibility to potentially increase the value of the character that they have the commercial rights to in addition to the community that it's associated with. So I think that that's one that exists outside of the tokenomics of our ecosystem. I think people are really going to find ways to sell their character or to increase the way people value it based on the content they can create with it. Another way of looking at what we're doing is these plots as our animated stories is kind of like a comic book. And you can imagine if you create a great piece of content on one of these plots, you could also sell the plot with the story intact. And it may be that some people want to collect the stories that are written with certain characters. We all know there's some really famous characters out there in the community, and we're excited about seeing people go and create an awesome story with their very famous character, and then reselling that story in the NFT associated with it. Someone who buys that plot, it's like land in the metaverse. They can go ahead and destroy it and create something new, or they can keep it and preserve it forever. We think that that's a feature, not a bug. 
there might be some people who want to preserve a story as something that they think is valuable because the story itself is what's meaningful. And you can imagine the earliest issues of some of these Marvel characters having this property of being the first thing that was written about this character. What's cool about Storyverse is you know that when this content was created, that the person who created it had the rights to create this content. It's something that's going to be built into the protocol. And we're not going to allow people to create content with NFTs that they don't have commercial rights to use. When you see this content, people will start to learn that this is valuable because you know it's authentic. And I think there are a lot of derivative projects out there right now where you don't know this and it's not on chain and it's not verified. And so what's going to be really cool about this protocol is it's letting people create new works with the things they have rights to in a way where you know that the work you're looking at is authentic. I think that's going to open up a lot of interesting opportunities. One thing we're excited about is communities using this to create lore together as a group. So they don't need to collaborate and come to consensus on what the story is before one of them starts writing. They could decide to write it in groups. They can pool together capital or their NFTs to license them into the same plot and build a story together. Or many people can individually build stories with the apes or the doodles they have the rights to. And as other people see those stories being built in the community, they can vote on whether they think those stories should be part of the official lore of the community. And that's where our ink token comes in. The ink utility token allows you to basically take a look at what somebody else in your community has created and decide if you think it should be part of the official lore for the project. If you do, you can use your ink to vote in the direction of, yes, this should be something that's official lore. And if you don't, you can vote no. And other people that are in the community can also use their ink to vote to decide whether or not that story becomes part of the official lore. What we think is interesting about that is it doesn't block the community in some form of strict consensus to go and build the official lore. It lets everybody contribute to it. You can kind of imagine a bunch of people separately working on pieces that make a lot of sense and then voting to arrange them in a way that they feel represents the community very well. And I think that's also solving a problem that a lot of these communities are really excited about right now. It's super cool because we've seen this happen in bits and starts in different places, but no one's really been able to wrangle the idea at scale and help a lot of these communities do this. So I think that's a really interesting area to explore. I'll admit, I own a lot of NFTs, Justin, and I have not read the licensing agreements for all of them in detail. But I can imagine that when lawyers draft these things, they're not the same boilerplate language. You said something that I was curious about of the notion of when you bring this IP into Storyverse that you're going to put that in code and on-chain. So how are you taking IP different across these communities? If I create a story with some of my NFTs and then I sell it, I'm sure that gets transferred depending on the characters involved. And I can imagine that's probably not a simple problem to solve. Yeah, it's not, especially because no one else has done it yet. We're really definitely trailblazing here. We are trying to set a standard for how to do this right. By the way, one of the reasons we landed on this project is because I worked with some of these other teams early in the space. Many of my friends from Dapper had gone on to start a lot of these famous NFT projects. So I met the Doodles team. I think it was maybe even before they minted being from the ex CryptoKitties team and with their background and a lot of these other projects like the Subducks team with Frankie. And there's many people who've been working on these earlier NFT projects that I crossed paths with. And that's where I really dove in on this idea of what are these teams excited about? What are their communities excited about? What do they want? How do they think about licensing? How do they think about the bottoms of brand building? And I learned a lot from those conversations. 
on the licensing side, what I realized was that the apes had come up with this idea of giving the commercial rights to individual holders. And people were so excited about it that most projects were following the same structure. But you're right. The license agreements were actually different. And most people, they weren't reading them, but they were excited about these rights. And they even thought about how they value these projects based on these rights. And so for us, we have to make sure the software understands the license agreement. What that means is trying to come up with a way for representing these different terms in code. And we've come up with a way to do that. And then we're going and we're interpreting these different partners' agreements in the best way we can to make sure we represent them accurately and put them into metadata so that the code can understand, okay, you pulled in an NFT from this particular project and this particular project allows you to do this, but not to do this. You must do this or you can't do this. And there's a bunch of parameters associated with each project that we want to make sure we follow. Then we can go ahead and we can also increase the transparency here because to your point, this isn't something that's easy for most people to do. They don't have the time to go and read the license agreements, but as a sort of side effect of taking this information and putting it into metadata that the computer can understand, it also means that we have the possibility potentially later of displaying this in a way where it's much more human readable to understand what the rights are associated with each of these projects and the obligations of the holders and the community and everything else. So maybe we can end up also as a public good, figuring out how to publish some of this so people can take an easy look at it and really understand and compare a bunch of the projects and get more familiar with each of their unique and different approaches to this. Yeah, that's amazing. Is it possible or is this just too wild of an idea that as I'm thinking about something like Doodles, it's this very cute, almost family-friendly thing. I've always wondered with the Storyverse, if someone turns Doodles into a horrible story and uses vile language, perhaps the Doodle seems like, I know you own the IP, I don't love where you're going with this. Do you envision that someone could say in our part of the NFT contract says you can use this for whatever you want, but we don't want to see swearing? And because that's coded, they're not monitoring everyone and issuing takedown orders. We just don't want our brand to swear for whatever reason. I'm just making it up. Is that something you envision as possible once we move IP and these licensing agreements on chain? Anything is possible. I have to imagine, and I think that this is something that already exists with a character like Spider-Man. I feel like I saw the contract that Sony had for Spider-Man fairly recently. I don't remember where I saw it, but somehow it leaked. I think they have a list in the contract of ways that Spider-Man must be portrayed in the movies that Sony makes and things that Spider-Man is not allowed to do. Spider-Man is not allowed to, I think using drugs was probably one of the examples. Luckily, one of the benefits of non-smart contracts is that they're read by very smart people. (laughs) And so people can follow these rules and understand what you mean and try to be reasonable about it. I'm not sure that we can implement all of very, very detailed moderation in code. But if that's important to some of these projects, we definitely want to figure out how to support it. I think what's going to end up mattering is also what the community's take on it is. As we've seen with a lot of Web2 platforms, we didn't realize this early on as an online community, but I think now people are very conscious that the moderation policy of a platform really changes how you can see building long-term value on it. And when you can get deplatformed on something like Twitter or Facebook or any of these other services, where they draw the line and how consistent they are and how that process is fair is really important. And if they haven't been able to figure it out at scale with code, I think it must be a very, very difficult problem. You could have a chilling effect, depending on what's reasonable. If you have a one-on-one conversation with a partner, it may be easy to define and have a longer conversation about where the line is. But if you're giving out the rights to 10,000 characters to potentially up to 10,000 people, you may not be able to have those conversations. And those people may feel a little bit worried if they haven't had a conversation with you about what's right and what's not. 
if you've said that you're going to moderate that, well, they may have to behave super conservatively to make sure they're following the rules. So there's going to be situations where I think it's really simple. Don't do this particular thing. Like they can't smoke. Okay, you know, easy enough. We can definitely enforce these types of things. Probably there's more vague considerations like family friendly, where if you're a holder of an IP that requests that of you, well, who determines what family friendly is and what does that mean for me? And how could it be used in a way that's potentially not allowing me to create the content that I've been promised I have the ability to create? What if I create something that I feel is family friendly and is becoming very popular? And now somebody that created a project is saying, well, we don't think it's family friendly, so you should shut it off. We'll have to see how these things pan out. We feel like everybody's so excited about the creation side of this that mostly it's going to be good things that come out of this. And certainly we're going to have to get through some of these issues, but it's all part of the next wave of figuring out what it means to actually build a brand together. I would say for us, we don't have a strong opinion on what the right approach is. On the license, we believe in bottoms up brand building. We think it's awesome that most of the communities are adopting that. And then when it comes to figuring out what the specific implementation of how to approach it in a way that every community is excited about, we're going to be trying to basically make sure the communities get what they want and that the owners can also get what they want. And it's basically just respecting their agreements between each other and figuring out how to facilitate it in the platform. It's going to be really exciting to watch the type of content that's created and how you handle this clear challenge. But I agree. I think people are so excited about the opportunity to create. And I think that, as you said before, we're all going to be very surprised with what people come up with. We like to end all these podcasts with the same question. So what are you excited about seeing built over the next six months? And what are you excited about seeing built over the next six years? One of the cool things about this space is it moves so quickly. And there's a lot of simultaneous invention that goes on. There's a lot of similar projects that are hitting similar veins, noticing similar trends, building different approaches to solving the same problem. For me, I'm really excited about reimagining what a game company looks like. And I think just like DAOs have transformed what it means to be an organization of people accomplishing a particular goal, I think that this idea of being able to decouple IP and other ways of contributing to the way that you use that IP, in our case, it's helping you build a story, but it's also helping you build a game. I am really looking forward to seeing more innovation on that outside of Storyverse. In the long run, one thing that we're interested in building at Playco is trying to figure out if Unity is the game engine for companies, what is the game engine for communities? When I think about a game engine or game development toolkit for communities, I think that it's not just about the interface that an artist sits down and uses to produce this particular piece of content. Unity is built for professionals, for game engineers for 15 years, or they're 3D artists doing what they do for a very long time. It's for professional full-time employee game developers. So what we want to go do is basically say, these communities are people who are part-time. Some of them have many different skill sets. They can all contribute in different ways. How do we assemble the thousands of holders in a project and have them outcompete these groups of 10 to 1,000 professionals? I think that there are the ingredients for that. And it's just this really interesting coordination problem. So over the six-year timeline, what I want to build is trying to figure out how to get these people who don't even know each other to build things together that are more impressive than the most skilled game development teams we see today. That's a problem that we're just getting started on it. We're just scratching the surface and Storyverse will be our first stab at it, but we're really, really excited about it. 
That's awesome, Justin. I'm so excited that this is where your focus is because I think it's an extremely exciting industry. And I think what you're bringing to it, the coordination, the community building, the giving people power to be creative is just such an excellent compliment. And I'm excited to see what you guys build. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. And we're very, very happy and lucky to have you as an advisor on the project. You've been great. And honestly, looking forward to chatting again soon. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 